0: That's Chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Welcome, everyone, to the Women of the Revolution. My name is Susan Bonner, and I am here with Yankee Mom. We're having technical difficulties tonight, just to let you know, right off the get-go. full <laughs> 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 disclosure. closure. Um, and our lady's going to be some... some a little bit different than we've been doing. But we are here, and we are ready to go, right?
0: I hope so. Yes, <laughs> I am. Um, <laughs> I just hope that the
1: friends
0: the of the Internet decide to take a yes. nap or something.
1: Right, and I have no Internet, ladies and gentlemen. I haven't had Internet since Saturday. I went to go turn a, I turned my computer on. I turned the router on. I looked at the modem. It's a wireless modem through AT&T, and nothing. And I went over to my husband. He did all his little doodad things because he knows he's a computer genius. And he knows what to do, nothing. So, believe it or not, we had Internet on his phone, but he ran out of, I don't know what it's called, gigabytes or memory. I don't even know. I'm computer illiterate. But we did have the Internet for two days, and he was always... Text the court for three hours, ladies and gentlemen, three hours, and it's still not fixed. So he's going to have to call them again tomorrow and start all over again. Isn't this wonderful? Technology is fabulous.
0: Yes. Yes, especially if you're over 50, (laughs) Um, which we are. (laughs) Uh, I, I prefer legal pads and pencils, but, you know, that's just me. But anyway, so I will be doing the producer part as well as the, the um, reading because Susan is just on the phone. So bear with us as we go through our wonderful woman um, that we don't really know that much about. There isn't that much about her. So this gives us a good chance to talk context when she was, um, you know, living in New Jersey and uh we're going to get into a bit of New Jersey history and why New Jersey was important during the Revolutionary War and how the the uh patriots um basically persecuted the loyalists and vice versa and uh and, and other things as we go along if we have time so there's quite a bit to cover and we shall uh Get started now.
1: Okay, well, I'm going to start with a little bit of our lady, what her name is, and a little tiny bit of background on her. I'm going to be I'm going to be reading from the essay that I have, what little I had, and then um, Yankee Mom, of course, what she said. She's going to interject about it. all things New Jersey and the Revolution.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> okay, so our uh, name of our lady is Jane Drummond. I cannot say her maiden name. I think it's Verlant. Yeah, and it was
0: it it it's Breland. Um, Vreeland is how you say it. I looked up pronunciations. Did, ya? did yeah, you? Yeah, Jeanette. Jeanette Oh, how was it, Jeanette? Well, it's J A N N E T J E, and uh, so it, they called her Jane. Yes. <laughs>
1: yes, yeah, <Yeah>. they did. <laughs> and she was a daughter of a prosper prosperous. Dutch farmer, farmers in Bergen County, was a loyalist. We, we mention that we were doing loyalist tonight, a loyalist lady, during the Revolutionary War. Her life and family were torn apart by her political views and those of her husband. And we will get into that as well um, after I read this a little bit because we've talked about this before. In 1759, Jane married Robert Drummond, a general merchant and shipper, and Aqua, aqua Cannot map Landing, butchered that one, but it's now Passaic, an important inland port on the Passaic River. By the time of the Revolution, Robert Drummond and Jane were prosperous and prominent community members. They were the parents of three living children, and appropriate to their station and life, had their portraits painted. I don't know why that was important, but Robert was an officer in the local militia, and the Yankee Mom is going to tell you about him because he's pivotal to everything that's going on in this area. He served in the New Jersey Assembly and then in the Patriot Provincial Congress. While Robert was interested in correcting the injustices brought by the crown, he was not an advocate of independence. This is a story of people switching sides. This is not, this is, that's why we, I wanted to do this. This is kind of unusual, uh, usually the loyalists that we have done. They didn't participate in anything that had to do with the Patriot cause, all Patriots. They were, from the get-go, most of them, were were in with the king because this is not going to work and we don't want to be away from the king. This couple, however, like he said, that he was in the provincial congress, they were, he, they were you know, semi patriot and then they switched sides because of a famous battle. And they thought, they, his, him particularly, Robert, thought that because of the outcome of this battle, that the patriots didn't have a chance. So then he switched sides. Needless to say, it was wrong, but it was a, it, it's showing how this was a civil war, okay? Not everybody was on board with running away from the king, and actually a small population of the colonists were involved actually with the Revolutionary War. So, without further ado, let's see, let me get my notes, and I think I did that correctly. Yeah, I can't even access the internet for my notes. I I wrote it down. I always write everything down.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Legal so, and pencil.
1: Yeah, oh you know what uh, Mark Levin uh did the essay I pencil today on his show.
0: He did the the what?
1: The essay I pencil.
0: Oh, he did again? Yeah. That's a very good one.
1: Yeah, we've done it. We've done it a couple times on our show. That and Stock Dollars are on my other radio show, and we're going to have to do that up again.
0: Yeah. But anyway,
1: we're going to start with the history of New Jersey that Yankee Mom has for us, because they are in New Jersey.
0: Yes, we are. Okay, this basically talks about the 18th century, because um, this is where we're at, and I mean, it would take the whole show to tell, because New Jersey was one of the earliest places, colonies. So, says the population of New Jersey grew slowly in the early part of the 18th century due to political and economic instability and the lack of a port. In 1702, New Jersey's population was approximately 10,000, Pennsylvania was 15,000, and New York's was (laughs) 20,000. That's amazing when you think about it. The majority of the population, about 7,500, lived in East Jersey. Most of the people were farmers, but there were also many large proprietary estates. East Jersey had nine well-established towns, six of which were inhabited by migrants from New England. The other three were more ethnic. The Dutch established Bergen and Perth Amboy, and Freehold were mostly Scottish. In West Jersey, the towns were smaller and dominated by the Quakers. The town of Burlington was an exception due to the significant number of Anglicans. New Jersey grew dramatically through the course of the 18th century, and by 1760, the population had passed 100,000. The region became more culturally diverse with large settlements of Germans in Hunterdon County and establishment of Newark by Congregationalists from Connecticut. Although culturally diverse, New Jersey developed into a more economically equal and middle-class society by the second half of the 18th century. New Jersey also developed an industrial base during the 18th century, including agriculture, glassware making, iron, and transportation. New Jersey had a strong farming background that would later be forced out by other industries and increased population. Beautifully cultivated gardens in the Raritan and Hackensack Valleys gave New Jersey the nickname of Garden State, but traditional agriculture flourished elsewhere in the state as well. Flax, hemp, and grains, and cabbage and lettuce and root vegetables grew well. Fruit trees were abundant, including apple, pear, cherry, and peach. Mining began during this time as well. The first copper mine opened in 1712. The iron industry began to operate during the late colonial period and by 1790, New Jersey was mining 10,000 tons of iron ore per year. And uh, another in- industry that had an early start in New Jersey was transportation. Because of its location between Philadelphia and New York, New Jersey became a very important commuter state. The first road between Philadelphia and New York was opened in 1764. Goods were transported between the two cities via the Jersey wagon, which was a large wagon with a cloth top. This wagon, which was one of America's first indigenous vehicles, eventually became the stage wagon and was used to transport people as well. New Jersey became the first place in America to offer regular public transportation. Now, during the American Revolution, New Jersey played a very active role. The colony trained and provided troops, made ammunition, and was home to numerous battles. New Jersey even had its own version of the Boston Tea Party. Dubbed the Jersey Tea Party, the incident took place when local Greenwich Patriots snuck into the cellar of a toy, Tory who was storing British tea. <coughs> Excuse me. The Patriots stole the tea, brought it to the town square, and set it on fire. This incident is a good indicator of the politically split nature of New Jersey during the second half of the century. When war became imminent, <laughs> New Jersey responded by building a number of forts. Three forts were erected along the Delaware, which was a vulnerable location because it provided passage to Philadelphia if breached. New Jersey did not see much action the first year of the war, but troops were sent to battle. In March of 1776, the 3rd New Jersey Battalion was summoned for duty in Canada and others were called for duty in New York. Action came close to home When George Washington led his retreating troops through New Jersey, when the British conquered Philadelphia, New Jersey's protection of the Delaware River became increasingly important. Unfortunately, Fort Billings, one of the Delaware River forts, was taken by surprise in September. The British took another of the forts, Fort Mercer, and the Americans were unable to hold the Delaware. The river went under the control of the British, and they were able to pass freely to Philadelphia. The last significant military action in New Jersey came when the British took the city of Salem in March of 1778. An interesting naval battle that took place in Cape May in 1776 is worth mentioning because it was the first naval battle waged by a New Jersey privateer. The Battle of Turtle Gut Inlet, that's that's, uh, quite a creative name, began when the British attacked the American ship Nancy as it returned from obtaining ammunition ammunitions in the Caribbean. Three American privateer ships reached the Nancy in time to help. The Americans tried desperately to unload as much cargo as possible before the ship went down. They fashioned a delayed explosion to sink the ship before the British took it, and it worked perfectly. Just as the British were boarding the Nancy, it exploded, blowing up the ship, and the recent british passengers oh dear so that must have been a sight to behold so that's that's why new jersey was was important during the war i mean it was a uh, you know the delaware river uh um, which is an incredible river i having lived in new jersey for a while um myself i certainly wasn't like it was then <laughs> But uh the Delaware was, was a very important uh you know, means of transportation and uh of course East East Jersey was you know, along the coast and there were ports eventually. Just not in the beginning. So you know, and it was right next to uh to New York, which again and Philadelphia of course, um it 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 was you know, a focal point for delivering supplies and, and, um, you know, getting the troops back and forth from the the east or the north and the south. Yes, we
1: had talked about it um, off air, how how many troops went through New Jersey to get anywhere, even up into Quebec. Yes. Yes. So that New Jersey was constantly being inundated with with people going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Yes. Now, it's amazing to me, as we get more into the story, that New Jersey was never captured by the British.
0: No, just Salem. Just one city, that was it. Yeah, yeah. And New Jersey's not that big. No, it isn't. It isn't. And... And if if you read, like in uh, Ron Chernow's book on Washington, he talks about, you know, the different generals on both sides taking the troops, okay, so Clinton's in New York, well, we've got to go there. So they went, you know, um, up from Virginia, and they had to go through New Jersey, and then they had to go back to Virginia, and then some went up to Canada, so they went through New Jersey up there, and... And they came down from Boston, and they, you know, it's just, you know, they, it, it they went through New Jersey. Yeah, that was the way you did it, depending on where the British were, or you know, and or the Patriots, you know, and if they had good generals, which they didn't, you know, didn't always have good generals, but the ones who were good, they, they, uh, you know, knew knew the fastest route. And you also have to remember that, okay, Washington was in New York for the first part, and then he went back to Virginia, um, you know, after the after Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, and all that, and then the Northern Theater kind of fizzled out, and then the Southern Theater came to be. So he went to Virginia, but Clinton was still in New York. Howe uh, was trying to get to Virginia... But he was chasing generals, and then the you know the the Continental soldiers, generals were chasing him. So they, I mean, they would do 200 mile marches uh, to go catch. Um, you know, oh well, you know they'd get they'd get their uh, messages messengers coming in saying, well, how's up here? Well, okay, well then we go up there, and these guys would be marching for 200 miles to catch up with Howe, and Howe's guys would would do the same thing. I mean, these poor guys walked up and down, up and down, chasing each other. It just amazed me how, uh, you know, no wonder they didn't have any shoes. And, and you know, you always see on TV the British uniforms looking so pristine, you know, white and, and all, like not a, a thread out of place. That's not exactly how they ended up. They were pretty ragged, too, towards, you know, after all this chasing went on for Few years. The only one, you could always tell the new ones who had come in because they were looking pristine and red and white instead of mud gray. Mm. So that is New Jersey. Oh, excuse me. I just had a little baby coughing Uh (laughs) stick.
1: All right. uh, So we're going to get into that hopefully as well what you were just talking about, that the British weren't as pristine and lovely as they portrayed them because um, of of the scarcity of supplies. Hopefully we'll we'll get to talk about that too because it comes in on the story. So the next person we're going to be talking about is Jane's husband, Robert Drummond.
0: Yes. Okay, now. Here we go. Oh, oh, again, this is... This is uh an older book so the typing the type is um a bit let me see I can make it larger there we go that helps Okay now it says here about Robert Drummond um he succeeded John Lowe in the in the um let's see it was the Birch Lumber Company yard. Um, and this was he was the uh, landing was in the first. Yeah. Okay. So he was he was um, working at the Birch Lumber Company, and he succeeded John Lew in the business, and was conducting it on the memor- memorable night of November twenty first, seventeen seventy six, when Washington passed through the place and re. And occupied a house just across the street from the company's building. Drummond was one of the most interesting of the revolutionary citizens of this place, and this is Bergen County, uh, which was, you know, where the Dutch settled. Um, and he and you know he and his family uh, and Jane and their children lived in Bergen County, and so. He was a grandson of Robert Drummond, who, by reason of persecution in Scotland in the reign of James, the, James II, came to New York, where he was sheriff in 1713 to 14. He afterward resided in Elizabeth, New Jersey. His first wife was the daughter of James Evett of St. Bostol, Bishopsgate, London. She died in 1712 or 13. His second wife was Anne, widow of Richard Hall of New York. His, her stepfather was Richard Knoll. Robert the Younger was born here in a house that stood in what is now Steers Park. Drummond was a storekeeper, a ship owner, and mined iron ore in Tempton, Ringwood, and other mines. He had an interest in some kind of some kind in nearly every iron mine in New Jersey, and in some in New York and Pennsylvania, when the Revolutionary War broke out, he remained loyal to the Crown and became a decided Tory. He was instrumental. Uh, let's see, wait a minute, where does this go? Um, he was uh, he was instrumental in recruiting the Second Battalion of New Jersey. That this is wrong. It was the third. This is see how this is where I got screwed up. It was the third um, battalion. But they had it wrong here. But we'll talk about the 3rd Battalion in a little bit. It was fought for King George, and of which he was major. Uh, Robert Drummond, major in the 3rd Battalion in New Jersey Loyalists. Of this battalion, upwards of 200 men were his neighbors, and they enlisted under his influence and persuasion. A large proportion of them fell victims to the climate of South Carolina, Georgia, et cetera, and or perished in battle. Um that when they say fell victim to the climate, they meant, you know, with uh, the malaria and yellow fever and typhoid and whatever else was you know, the South Carolina, you know, the Carolinas were and Georgia were notorious for for the, the sicknesses that, that uh were carried by bugs and, you know, uh, mosquitoes and not the best, um, most hygienic living conditions. So, New Jersey volunteers loyalist Stryker says few men did more to make General Skinner's brigade a numerical success than Robert Drummond. He spent most of the fall of 1776 recruiting for the volunteers. was very successful and was made major of the third battalion. On November 20th, 1776, and in 1782 and 83 of the 2nd Battalion, he was in service during the whole war. A large number of the men enlisted by him fell victims to fever in southern campaigns. He died in the Chelsea Hospital District of London and was buried in St. Luke's Churchyard, February 3rd, 1780. Uh, I believe that was Stryker. Major Drummond, before the war, lived in Aquedinia, at Landing, now Passaic, New Jersey, and was a merchant and skipper. He married April 1st, 17... I believe that's 50. It's so hard to read. Jenny, daughter of Elias Vreeland. A portrait of him is still extant, taken in London in 1784, which represents him in the uniform of a British officer. Scarlet coat, blue facings, and buff vest. He was a member of the General Assembly of the... Province of New Jersey from 1770 to 1774, a deputy to the Provincial Congress in May 1775, and again in October, and in January and June 1776. On July 2nd, 1776, he voted against the adoption of the Constitution of the state. In 1778, his property was all confiscated. Uh, Let's see. He owned a property where his store stood, but seems to have abandoned the business at the beginning of the war with his other possessions and never returned to reclaim them. Drummond was at least sincere in his Toryism. He gave up wealth and died poor. He had five children, born here and baptized in the old church between 1760 and February 1775, Of these, two died young and are buried in the old churchyard. Mary died October 6, 1761, only five months old. Sarah died October 29, 1772, aged four years and nine months. Their mother, who remained in Passaic and died here about 1790, was buried beside her children but has no tombstone. The family has become extinct as the only grandchildren who survived Childhood died childless about 20 years ago. It is recorded that among the property confiscated in 1778 was a farm of 63 acres near Pompton. It is also on record that in 1795 the surrogate of Essex County appointed Peter Allen guardian of Elias, only son of Robert Drummond. So they were loyal to the crown even though you know and this is the thing he was he was serving in the New Jersey assembly and then he went into the the um the the uh congress you know and he uh how torn he must have been you know thinking okay let's let's you know put on the the uh the American colonist hat And here you've been serving your colony, your state, um, you know, and and being beholden to the king, you know, being, and all of a sudden, you know, no, it wasn't all of a sudden. I mean, you know, in ten years you're seeing things bubble up and, and, and the the crown um and parliament passing laws which aren't really and he's a businessman he's a merchant so you know he's seeing taxes and things hey not good and so he's he's not happy with the crown but then they start talking about you know revolution and it will have to come to war and and he oh you know no 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 we, let's not do that he thought that was a bad plan so he had to he had to stand up for his principles which was loyalty to the crown he's you know we're british american british um and because the americans and the british really didn't um Come into contact too much. I mean, you know, a lot of the royal governors were born in the colonies. You know, there were a few that were sent over from from Britain, but so you know, they're mostly Americans. And how hard it must have been in that family. You know that you know this is his his thought. I'm a businessman, and this is ruining my business. But my God, they're talking war, and Jane. I'm the mother of children, I've already lost two, just for, you know, natural causes, and, and now they're talking about war. I mean, oh, I, oh it, it just, whew, it took my breath away when I, I sat and, and read, you know, what this family went through. It's so many of, you know, the women we talk about, their families did.
1: Well, and we talked about this before with other loyalist um, women that even if they, even if they were with the patriot cause and were sympathetic, in other words, sympathetic to the patriot cause, and did agree that something had to be done, and as drastic as this was, uh, had to be. It didn't matter because if your husband or your father was a loyalist, the entire family was. Mm hmm. You know, and look at the difference. Even though he was a merchant, look, what Samuel Adams was a merchant, too. He stood stood to lose a lot. But in his mind, it was worth it because he wasn't going to put up with what the king was doing to them anyway. Right. And this is another merchant who is very rich and has a lot to lose, and he's going to stick with the king. I mean, it's just amazing how... But people from the same continent, you know, even though that we were diverse, we had different religions, um, different backgrounds. But how they could that? It just reminds me of what's going on today.
0: Yes. Yes. And and you know the. Civil and the thing
1: that's really sad, though, Yankee Mom, is that we have the con—we have the Constitution.
0: Yes. We have
1: a document that is our laws and makes us one people under God and still because of human nature we're having these problems.
0: Mhm. Yes, it's always human nature. I mean, we did it in the, what is this? We have a civil war every 100 years. It's a wonder it didn't happen in the 1900s, so it came or you know the the 20th century even though it came close a couple of times. But uh we were reeling from World War 1 and World War 2 and the Korean War and then the Cold War. Um you know, so it, we were, we were until the late 1900s. We were pretty unified uh, as a nation in doing what needed to be done. Now, starting the 20, well, ending the 19, the 20th century and entering the 21st century, unfortunately, the Bolsheviks have gotten into power and they have, um, you know, divided us as they are so good at doing. And that's a whole nother show. All right. He'll
1: get and going back to the essay, it says here, when the British Army invaded New Jersey in November 1776, it appeared that the Patriot cause would soon be lost. To, pro- to protect his family and his considerable business interests, Robert, formerly affiliated with the Loyalists, and was made a major in the New Jersey Volunteers by the British General William Howe. So his local influence, he recruited some 200 local volunteers to his company. At this time, the fortunes of of Jane and her family changed forever. So this is when he decided uh, to throw in with the British because he didn't think, you know, and and again, it goes back to um, getting information. Uh, It was very hard to get information. It took a very long time for, uh, you know, news to reach people. And at this time, he was just seeing what was happening in his little state He wasn't hearing about, you know, other uh, battles that had been won by patriots. And he was just getting information from where he was, because it's really hard to get information outside of your area. It takes a long time. And he just decided his family had really close ties, like Jack read with the crown. And he just decided that this would be best for his family. It didn't turn out to be. But, you know, hindsight's what, 2020?
0: Yeah, plus the fact that they had their principles. I mean, the more I read about the Loyalists, you know, I, I grew up in Massachusetts and stood on Concord Bridge and, and you know, walked the battlefield and, and was in Valley Forge. And uh, we went to, um, you know, Breed's Hill and Bunkers Hill, Bunker Hill, because my father, you know, his idea of a vacation was, you know, tracing history by battlefields and forts. So I saw many of them on these on these coast um from Maine on down. And uh So, you know, here I am a Massachusetts. Yay, Patriots, right? Um even the football team. Yes. But um reading about the loyalists, which I'm so glad we decided to do because it, it's it's as you say, it's a lot like today and He's talking about his neighbors, you know, um, and and there were the people that, that lived nearby that were of the patriot I, ideals, and then there were the loyalists. And, you know, a couple of years before 1776, everybody's, you know, uh, doing business together, socializing, um, yeah, taking care of each other, you know, if there's a problem, they're in church together. And then this comes, and families were split, not only neighborhoods and communities and churches, but families were split. And and as as Susan said, if you were married to a loyalist and you were a woman, you were a loyalist, no matter whether you believed with the patriots or not. You were looked upon as a loyalist. Yeah, You didn't have any choice. So it was, you know, oh, this really brought it home for me. This this really did. Well, yes,
1: because he, as I just read, he had just been hard and, and long about what to do. Mm. You know, this wasn't, some of the loyalists that we read were just, you know, that's why I said this was a different kind of story about a loyalist. A lot of the loyalist women that we did, it would never even cross their minds not to join uh, with the king. A lot of them that they had, they were like, well, there's nothing else I can do. I'm with the king.
0: Yeah. I'm going to lose
1: everything if I'm not with the king. But he had to literally change his mind.
0: Yeah. yeah. And he
1: also had to convince his wife to change her mind.
0: Yes. And and again, you know, we talk about the patriots, um, you know, like Sam Adams and Jefferson and John Hancock and you know, all the founders, uh, their families were in, in you know, in dangerous territory also. I mean, you know, there was treason against the king. So their families were looked as rebellion or as rebels just as much as the husband if they were married. Um, so they were enemies of the crown just by having married, you know, someone who signed the Declaration of Independence or you know, did part of the tea party or took up arms, so, but the loyalist families also went through this on the other side, and nobody was exempt, you know, eventually, it really, it got to the point where nobody was exempt, it didn't matter, there, you know, the armies needed food, they took it, they didn't care, you know, whose side you were on at this point, so it it really, it really was a you know, we we hear about the battles, and we hear about you know, we read about the men who who uh, t- partook in in you know whether le- uh, legislatively or militarily or supportively, but the families um, were were <laughs> families lost their houses, they lost their farms, they lost their businesses, they you know they lost their sons. You know, that went off to fight, uh, and and then there was just the regular everyday stuff like illness and childbirth, and, um, you know, life went on, even though you were in a war, but it, it was brutal. You know, oh, yeah, we, we have Fourth of July, and it's wonderful, and we set off fireworks and everything, but these, these people were dodging, you know, cannonballs and musket balls, So, yeah, it just really, this one really touched me. I don't know why, but it just did. Maybe it's the culmination of, you know, women fleeing in the middle of the night as their house burned with, you know, their five children. Nowhere to go. Right. Well,
1: now, on that thing, do you have the 3rd Battalion up?
0: The the what?
1: The 3rd Battalion?
0: Uh, No, but I can get it in just a minute. I am running out. Of, <laughs> I'm running out of space. Hold on.
1: Yeah, uh, I know. And I'm really uh, cuz I really <laughs> like the story of the second
0: battalion that I have. So
1: <laughs> I'm kind of sad that it was the wrong battalion.
0: One is is really neat too. It's it's this is for Oh, I well, let, remind me to tell you which book I read about uh Robert Drummond. because I forgot to mention that. But this is the Loyalist Institute. uh royalprovincial.com. And it's the Online Institute for Advanced Loyalist Studies, which is a it's really neat, neat website if you want to see the other side. So anyways, this is the history of the 3rd Battalion New Jersey Volunteers. The 3rd Battalion New Jersey Volunteers was one of six battalions raised in New Jersey by Brigadier General Cortland Skinner. Each battalion was raised in a different geographic lo- uh, region. In November of 1776, a Loyalist by the name of William Luce. Received permission to raise a battalion. Luce was captured by the rebels almost immediately, and so command went instead uh, to a prominent young man by the name, word, name of Edward Vaughan Dungen. Dungen was from Essex County, which bordered both Bergen County and Staten Island. His second in command was a wealthy loyalist from Equaconac um, i e Passaic, named Robert Drummond. Drummond was instrumental in helping the British in their invasion of New Jersey. When Cornwallis' army got to Second River, the modern Passaic, it was Drummond who found them a proper place to cross, thereby enabling them to continue their pursuit of Washington's retreating army. Drummond was also adept at recruiting and listing over 125 men. The men were primarily from Essex, Essex County, many of them of Dutch ancestry, while some others were Huguenots. The battalion suffered, as all other battalions of the New Jersey Volunteers were at the time. They were attempting to recruit, train, and serve, while being on the outposts of the army. Picture enlisting in the army and immediately being thrown on duty and perhaps even into combat. You know, no, no weeks, no nine weeks of basic training. You know, you just grab your gun and go. Initially, there was not even clothing to give the men, and they had to serve until April of 1777 in whatever they wore from home. However, in April, they received their first uniforms, green coats, faced with white. For the next year, the NJV, the New Jersey Volunteers, and many other provincials would be known by their enemies simply as the Greens. Throughout 1777, the battalion took part in numerous raids throughout the countryside, Those mostly originated from Staten Island, which became the home to the New Jersey volunteers for many years. In one raid up to Bergen County, the battalion had its first officer wounded, Captain Hudnut, who the paper said had received a bayonet to the groin. The cumulative effect of these raids led Continental General John Sullivan to propose an attack to wipe out all the New Jersey volunteers. In August of 1777, with 2,000 Continentals and militia, mostly from New Jersey, Maryland, and Delaware, Sullivan attacked Staten Island. Many officers and men of the 1st and 5th Battalions were quickly captured. The 3rd and 6th Battalions had received timely intelligence from a New Jersey refugee and were able to throw themselves in some old fortifications, thereby avoiding many losses. Upon the rebels failing, falling to plunder and otherwise retreating, the New Jersey volunteers were ordered to attack them wherever they could be found. They found them embarking in boats back to the Jersey shore and attacked several times. In one of these attacks, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Colonel Dungeon was shot and mortally wounded. He did not know it at the time, but his wife had been forced to flee into the swamp by the attack with their three-year-old son, where she was ravished. Don died three days later, August 24, 1777, and within three hours, his son was likewise dead from exposure and fright. They were buried together at Trinity Church, New York City, and this just broke my heart. <laughs> you know, oh dear, it's so sad. The battalion quickly had some revenge by being a part of Sir Henry Clinton's September Grand Forage into Bergen County. These two events, though, as well as numerous other skirmishes, significantly reduced the number of soldiers in all the battalions. To make them more useful and reduce the number of excess officers, the brigade was reduced from six battalions to four. The first and the fifth were combined into one, as were the third and sixth, The merger of the 3rd and 6th Battalions produced a new 3rd Battalion. The men were no longer mostly from Essex. The 6th had been raised in Hunterdon County in the western part of the province. The command of the new 3rd was given to Lieutenant Colonel Isaac Allen, a Trenton lawyer who had been the commander of the 6th. Allen was no doubt the finest commander among the different battalions of the New Jersey Volunteers. For the rest of the war, the unit would maintain an excellent record of discipline. It had by far the fewest number of desertions and was involved in more large actions than any of the other battalions. In September of 1778, they were further strengthened with two more companies of men. These came from the West West Jersey Volunteers, a unit raised earlier that year while the British Army was in Philadelphia. These men came from Salem, Gloucester, and Cumberland counties, making the third the most diverse battalion of the New Jersey Volunteers. 120 men of the battalion had the honor of serving under the celebrated Captain Patrick Ferguson in their last raid into New Jersey. They, along with some men of the 1st Battalion and the 5th Regiment of Foot, British, caught the famous Pulaski's Legion while asleep at Egg Harbor. Using only bayonets, they killed and wounded as many as 50 officers and men, losing only a few men wounded, including Ensign Kemp, who was himself bayoneted in the thigh, The theater of war shifting to the south, the 3rd Battalion was a part of the expedition under Lieutenant Colonel Archibald Campbell. Campbell was the first British officer, as he put it, to tear a star and stripe from the American flag. Campbell was sent to capture Georgia, but his plan was almost ruined by a member of the 3rd Battalion. One of the transport ships that carried men of the unit... The Neptune got separated from the fleet and arrived off of Savannah weeks before any others. One of the New Jersey volunteers deserted and told the rebels what was coming their way. It mattered little as Lieutenant uh, Lieutenant Colonel Campbell and the army quickly arrived into the city after a short battle on the 29th of December, 1778. While short in duration and few in casualties on the British side, the 3rd Battalion lost its light infantry commander, Captain Campbell, he was replaced by Captain Peter Campbell, no close relation. This started the battalion's most exciting time. They continued serving in Georgia throughout the year 1779. Um, In September, a large French fleet appeared off Savannah and was later joined by a large force of continentals and militia from South Carolina. The French commander demanded the surrender of the king to the King of France, to surrender the city to the King of France, but the 2,600 British loyalist and Hessian troops refused and withstood a siege of over three weeks. With hurricane season rapidly upon them and the French fleet needing to leave, the Allied army assault, assaulted the city where they were repulsed with massive losses. The New Jersey Volunteers were in a redoubt all to their own on the left line, left of the line, where they were attacked by Southern. Carolina Continentals. This repulse enabled the British to turn their attention to the conquest of South Carolina. Sir Henry Clinton arrived in February of 1780 with a large army from New York. This army, joined by troops from Georgia, would besiege Charlestown. Part of the troops from Georgia included the Light Infantry Company of the 3rd Battalion. They were a witness to the fall of the city on the 12th of May, 1780. The rest of the battalion marched in July of 1780 with a large army from New York. This army, joined by troops from Georgia, would besiege Charlestown. Part of the troops from Georgia included... Oh, I just read that. Uh, I'm sorry. The rest of the battalion marched in July of 1780 to garrison Augusta, Georgia, well into the interior of the province and on the South Carolina border. After a short stay there, they continued on to 96 South Carolina, where they would earn their greatest laurels. Almost immediately, they were thrown into action in their new locale. Colonel Alexander Innes of the South Carolina Royalists promptly led the third flight company into an ambush at Musgroves Mills. Every officer of the company was wounded, and many of the men were killed or likewise wounded. Back in August, Augusta, the sick of the unit, who had been left behind under Major Drummond, were all captured, killed, or wounded by an attack on that place in September. The battalion, then at 96, rushed back to assist the defenders of the town and were able to drive the attackers off. And Colonel Allen shared command at 96 with Lieutenant Colonel John Harris Kruger of the 1st Battalion, Delancey's Brigade. Kruger himself was the finest officer in his units, thereby giving the post to excellent officers. Numerous raids were made around the post, with some losses on both sides. With a defeat at Kings Mountain and Cowpens, the British were thrown quickly on the defensive in South Carolina. Lord Cornwallis had taken most of the British army into North Carolina and later Virginia, leaving South Carolina open to attack. One by one, the British outposts fell to the rebel partisans, such as Sumter, Marion, and others. Um, and it just it goes on and on about the battles, but you can see how. Um, let's see, uh, it was in this area at Utah Springs. Where the battalion fought its last and bloodiest battle, and that's um when uh Nathaniel Green came in and uh in seventeen eighty one and really kicked butt so you can go over there and read about the rest of the uh rest of the 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 uh history of the battalion 'cause it goes on. And um, they eventually returned to New York in 1783. Um, Most uh, most of the Loyalists were unable to return home due to their property being confiscated or laws passed against them. Wishing to remain under British rule, they were resettled, troops and civilians alike, in other parts of the British Empire. For the 3rd Battalion, this meant a journey to the St. John River in Nova Scotia, later New Brunswick, The battalion received a grant of land in Kings County New Brunswick where they could take up civilian lives one last important thing to note is that there was a further reduction of the New Jersey volunteers in 1781 the second battalion commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Morris was drafted into the first and fourth battalions this had the effect of the third battalion being renumbered as the second and the fourth as the third so I have quite a history and Drummond was uh Robert Drummond was quite um, instrumental in in getting men recruited to go into the battalion but again you know he he ended up in the southern theater which took a lot of uh lives due to illness um, basically more men died of illness than by you know battle during the Revolutionary War. So so there, you know, he is. And, you know, if you, I doubt you, I mean, he didn't have a home to go to.
1: Well, and again, as, as far as communication-wise, and, and uh, we don't have very much on Jane at all, but she's, and we'll get into how they treated the loyalists, she is home. Keeping everything together just like all the just like the patriot women that we have uh read about, and she doesn't know what's going on with her husband,
0: yeah yeah, you know they were what would happen is if someone was you know one of the the troops were were going back home you know they they you know to the the they lived in the same area then they would carry a parcel of letters from all the, the soldiers that weren't going home. You know, if they were wounded and they were going to be taken back home or you know if they had done their time and they were leaving or whatever, they would give them the parcel of mail and they would go about each place and, and give the mail to all the, the, the families left behind. That was one way they did it, and, that, you know of course, couriers. But this was all on horseback. There wasn't any telephones and no internet. <laughs> so they, uh, you know, you waited and prayed a lot.
1: But it was different for the loyalists.
0: Yeah, I mean, you the know, Patriots
1: got The Patriots got more information back to the Patriots than the loyalists because the loyalists were being persecuted. And again, well, they yeah. were getting thrown out of their houses, so there was no place to deliver any kind of a message It was hard for them to get messages back and forth because they were being monitored so closely. Yeah. And, um, well, that's basically those two things would hamper any kind of communication between the loyalists and their family.
0: Well, this is it. You know, here you are living in this town, you know, watching your neighbors' houses get confiscated, their properties being confiscated. You're wondering if you're next your husband's fighting off somewhere, maybe, you know, two or three of your sons, and you don't know how they're doing. You don't know if you're going to have your property tomorrow. And on the flip side, the soldiers of
1: telling them.
0: Yes. Yes. And, and the soldiers are fighting, wondering if their family still has a house. You <laughs> do know? Do we still own property?
1: Right. So it's, it was definitely different for them compared to the patriots and it got worse and worse for the loyalists as uh patriots won more battles
0: yes so well, that's why a lot of them left um a lot of the new jersey loyalists when it when it started getting hot decided to you know they they went over to new york to try to take a a ship like the woman that we that we talked about who went to England, um, she didn't want to go to Canada, and her husband had already left. Uh, but a lot of them left. A, a great number of them left at the end of uh, 76, and then um, in 78, and then in, in 1780, there was a mass um, exodus of loyalists up to Canada and England or the Bahamas or... You know wherever there was a, an English colony, so, but yeah, it was it was like oh my God, am I going to have my house tomorrow? Or are they coming? And come they did. Yes, they did. So
1: now I want to get into some of the battles of New Jersey that uh, that you found, Yankee Mom, because. We don't really, well, we don't really hear anything about the, the history the way it's supposed to be, but um, the way it really was, I mean. But, but New Jersey really didn't, if, unless we actually went and searched, you know, for these battles, they are not really mentioned in, in other, in, in history books. Well, nothing we love is in the history books. But they're not, it's more like the Battle of Charleston more prominent, like right? The Battle of... Uh, you know Boston like, Yeah, you know, all of those are they're highlighted pretty much anywhere
0: you go. You can just click yeah. on it. So
1: um, you had to really dig for these.
0: Yeah, well yeah, I had to go to, you know, New Jersey site and uh to to find out about New Jersey. Um, even though I mean it says here, this is the uh double uh dot com website and it's a view of the history of the revolutionary war in New Jersey and there's a lot of information here which i am just going to give a, a brief um a brief overview of but if you want to go there it's doublegv.com, uh and it it's the it has also um other pages that have to do with uh more on um you know, New Jersey uh, battles and skirmishes and soldiers and, and what, you know, little little incidents that happened. And um, you can even find the Manual of Arms, you know, <laughs> and tactics and weapons. So it's really a very interesting site. But we'll just get to the the overview of the major actions in the state. And it starts saying that... Uh, New Jersey is called the crossroads of the American Revolution because it held a key geographical position at the center of the new nation and the armies were in or crossing it throughout the war. It was heavily involved in the fighting due to troop movements through the state and its key geographic position between New York City and Philadelphia. New Jersey had more engagements than any other state during the war, closely followed by South Carolina. So you can see, you know, they, they called it the crossroads because of its It was militarily a a important geographic location. So so some of the major uh, the major actions in the state. The forced abandonment of Fort Lee, November twentieth, seventeen seventy six, started the retreat of the American army across New Jersey to the other side of the Delaware. The first battle of Trenton, December twenty sixth, seventeen seventy six. The Battle of Princeton, June January third, seventeen seventy seven. The Battle of Bound Brook, April 14, 1777. The Battle of Short Hills, June 1777. River Fort's defense of the Lower Delaware, fall of 1777. The Battle of Monmouth, June 28, 1778. The Battle of Connecticut Farms, June 6, 1780. The Battle of Springfield, June 23, 1780. Last large action in the north. In addition there were hundreds even thousands of smaller battles engagements skirmishes raids ambushes etc involving regular troops militia units and loyalist units and many actions off the coast of sea vessels New, Jer- New Jersey men used whaleboats to raid British shipping in territories around New York City Long Island and off Sandy Hook besides the small ships used as privateers mm. and you can look up the whaleboat wars in this site, and they have more information, you know, you can just click on uh, as it goes on and talks about it. it, you know, basically it says, many people at the time in New Jersey were disaffected, as they called it, Tories and Loyalists who supported the King. The Revolution was actually a civil war, neighbor against neighbor, and it took years after the war to settle the old hatred. The hatreds, the patriots, looted the Tories, raided their strongholds, confiscated their lands, homes, and businesses under the Treason Acts. The loyalists returned the treatment whenever possible and paid them back with interest and passed information to the British about the rebels. Sometimes a father would have one son in one army and another in the opposing camp in an effort to play both sides and keep his property no matter what the outcome of the war The British and their Hessian troops who entered the state to crush the rebellion were brutal in their habits, stealing, looting, and raping both patriots and loyalists. This later worked against them, since it seemed to many New Jerseyans better to have local leaders than to trust to British protection after that horrible experience. So um, New Jersey, you don't really hear about New Jersey. (laughs) I mean, I've been to battlefields in New Jersey, you know, on certain vacations, my father being the history buff that he was. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you hear about the other bigger uh, um, military actions. So there were, uh, let's see, was there anything else here? No, it just, you can, you can. Uh, okay n- um, it has a, um a little bit about the sea coast here uh that is kind of important it, and plus New Jersey made important contributions of war materials such as raw iron and worked iron, including field pieces, muskets, shot salt gunpowder, and cloth manufacturing, had been prohibited by the british and these were new and vital industries that were started, and again you know at the beginning of our manufacturing. Uh, was brought about by the British blockade. New Jersey has a long sea coast with many small bays and small ports. During the Revolution, they became important points for shipping since New York City was held by the British and Philadelphia was held for a time. Both commercial shipping and privateers out to capture British shipping based themselves in New Jersey, and British losses to New Jersey privateers was a constant sore spot. Occasionally, a British would raid a small port or supply Loyalist units from one. Ships were built along the ocean and Delaware rivers for use against the British. The fighting force of the United States fleet and state ships were small, but the effect of the commerce raiding on British merchantmen was an important factor in winning the war. Many sea battles were fought in New Jersey ocean waters. The small towns along the shore were raided much like the neutral ground. They were accessible by water, provided various materials to the revolution, such as salt, and raided the British, though were targeted."
1: yeah there and well, I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that we didn't even think about because New York was held by the British and Philadelphia too. Where else would they go? They needed another another uh shore mhm yeah You're also not brought, brought up very often. How important the Jersey Shore was, except for that stupid show.
0: Yeah. Yes, there's a, um, there's a a a, an art, a letter here from Colonel William Harcourt to his father Earl Harcourt from Brunswick in 1777, and it, it's it's rather interesting uh, the the picture <coughs> it paints. He says, the public papers have hitherto given you a fair account of our operations. In what light they may state the affairs of Trenton and Princeton, I cannot so easily guess, for however we may blame the scandalous negligence and cowardice of the Hessian brigade, there certainly was a fault in the original arrangement of the winter quarters, which were much too extensive for an army of our numbers, and the position of Trenton in itself extremely faulty. However, government may have been flattered by the representations of a few interested individuals You may depend upon it as a fact that we have not yet met with 10, I believe I have said, two disinterested friends to the supremacy of Great Britain, that from the want of intelligence we frequently may generally lose the favorable opportunity for just striking a decisive stroke, that in general we ought to avoid attacking any considerable body of them, Suppose two or three hundred, unless we can pursue our advantage, or at least take post. For though we may carry our point, nevertheless, whenever we attempt to return to our quarters, we may, be, we may be assured of their harassing us upon our retreat. That detached corps should never march without artillery, of which the rebels are extremely apprehensive. Lastly, that, though they seem to be ignorant of the precision and order, and even of the principles by which large bodies are moved, yet they possess some of the requisite. Rec- requisites for making good troops such as extreme cunning great industry and moving ground and spelling of wood activity and a spirit of enterprise upon any advantage having said thus much i have no occasion to add that though it was once the fashion of this army to treat them in the most contemptible light they are now become a formidable enemy formidable however as they may be i flatter myself we are a good deal more so and i have therefore little doubt that provided affairs continue quiet in Europe and the expected reinforcements arrive in good time, we shall soon bring this business to a happy conclusion. <laughs> I thought that was great. Got to love the British. Not really. So.
1: Okay, so now I'm going to go back to the essay a little bit because we talked about um what's going on in New Jersey as far as battles that uh, that were hardly ever mentioned. I mean, uh, the way, the more you read, I'm going, what? Come on, yeah. I haven't heard about this. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I need you to go to um, Robert Drummond in his own words before I move on to Jane's essay, what little of it there is.
0: <laughs> yeah, okay. It's loading. We're very windy here, so sometimes the Internet's, Yes, well, you know, the we have. Uh, uh, okay, Robert Drummond. Now this is from RevolutionaryNewJersey.org, and this is this is. Um, it's cute the way they have it. They they have it spoken in the first person. So, this is the defense of the Hudson. Retreat across the Jerseys divided loyalties. This is Robert Drummond speaking. I was a well-to-do Essex County merchant who also served as a militia captain. I married Jane Vreeland, known as or Jeanette Vreeland, known as Jane. During the spring of 1776, my militia company spent time in Brooklyn building fortifications for defense against an expected British invasion that summer. However, The Declaration of Independence caused me to reassess my commitment to the struggle. Fighting for a redress of grievances was one thing, but fighting for independence was quite another. As the Continental soldiers retreated after the fall of Fort Lee, I slipped through their lines and joined the British as Major in the 3rd Battalion of the New Jersey Volunteers. After making several raids on rebel-held areas, we were attacked on Staten Island in August 1777, and our Lieutenant Colonel was mortally wounded. I expected to replace him, but the 6th Battalion merged with my 3rd, and Lieutenant Colonel Isaac Allen was put in command. My battalion served in Georgia in 1779 and marched from Savannah to Augusta in 1780. I had driven from Savannah to Augusta, and uh, <laughs> I wouldn't want to have to march there. I was captured in September, but was exchanged just in time to rejoin my battalion at the post at 96 in South Carolina, where we heroically held off a much larger continental force. After the evacuation of Charlestown in 1782, we sailed back to New York, and soon I learned, heard about the preliminary peace agreement. Jane and I sailed with the British Army when it evacuated New York and lived the rest of our lives in London. I was only about 56 years old when I died in 1789. So they went back to England. Didn't say what he died of, but I imagine after all that marching hither and to, and uh, the the uh, and especially Georgia in the summer, you know, going from Savannah to Augusta and then to 96 in South Carolina. Whew, And hoping you find water.
1: Well I'm just um amazed how he got reunited. which they're not even telling us any of that, how he got reunited with his family.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um let's see, then there's uh let me let me see if it has it over here. Um yeah it 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 tells a little more here on this next page um more about the the uh battles he was in um, it says my battalion took part in additional fighting in the south in seventeen eighty one but I was not present for it. I did, however, witness the fighting in South Carolina after Yorktown until my battalion sailed back to New York after the evacuation of Charleston in December 1782. Then I heard about the preliminary peace agreement its few provisions to protect those of us who remain loyal. Um, Jane and I left with the British Army when it evacuated New York on November 25, 1783, and were set up in London by the following February. I was awarded a 1,286 pounds in damages by the Commissioners for American Claims, and this allowed me to live in some comfort for the remaining five years of my life. So he, he got to New York, it sounds like. And I imagine after the property was confiscated, Jane went to New York with many other Loyalists. And like I said, they they left New Jersey. They had to go somewhere, and because Clinton was in New York, and New York was uh, basically uh, fortified by the British Army and heavily loyalist because the Patriots had left it. You know, when when George Washington tried to take New York, and then New York burned twice, Um, and and because it was heavily loyalist, the, the Patriots basically were... Um, they they left or they were uh, made to leave. So I'm sure it sounds like he he uh, left the the southern theater after Yorktown, and his battalion sailed back to New York when Charleston was evacuated, and um, that's where he met up with his family. You can remember when we did the the woman who did. Oh my gosh, she she tried to get to uh, to England, and she had to spend what was it um, three months out in the harbor of New York before she could even set foot in New York. Yep. And when, when she got there, there were you know like ten thousand loyalists who had you know come from everywhere.
1: Yep, and they were setting up t- sandy towns in the middle of the streets. Yeah,
0: tents. They were really, in
1: tents. and you know,
0: have connections in New York, which she did, uh, and she had a place to stay. Other people lived in tents. Yeah, but it
1: wasn't, we all already talked about that, too. It wasn't, wasn't for her. She was getting seasick all the time.
0: Oh, I know. Oh, she was so, post- <laughs> yeah, yeah, she was very, very ill. Um. Yeah. yeah, I can't imagine, you know, if, if you have a tendency towards seasickness, how much fun that would have been.
1: Yeah, that would have been me. <laughs> I am seasick, airsick.
0: I would have I been. I got, got over the
1: car sickness a little bit, but.
0: I, I don't have any of that, so I would have been holding your head and rubbing your back. <laughs>
1: yeah, you would have been. <laughs> Just for me to get on a plane, I have to go through all this ritualistic stuff to make sure that I'm not going to throw up the whole time.
0: Oh, see, I, I have no problem with that. I am so blessed. Um, you know, I that's why I always had to sit in the back seat when I was a kid because my brother got car sick, so he had to sit up front.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, okay, so
1: I am going to go back to the essay uh, just to read a little bit briefly more about her which, like I said, is not a lot. And then we can get more into the um, punishing of the Tories. Okay. So, loyalists and their families in New Jersey, as in other states, were subject to personal harassment and physical harm, as well as to punishing. Anti-Tory laws. Early in 1777, local mobs plundered Jane's store and carried off some 1,000 pounds worth of goods which is a lot. Yeah. She has to feed her family, and she still wants to make some kind of a living. Um, So that was a lot, a thousand pounds worth of goods. Presumably, for reasons of safety, Drummond and her children, ages 14, 11, and 2, accompanied Robert when he was stationed in Long Island, and then in Virginia, Georgia, and the Carolinas. So this essay is saying that they went with him.
0: They went with him. Okay. Yes. Yeah. That part. Yeah. Yeah, and and just think that, I mean the they, safety. I mean they were just as prone to the illnesses, which uh, took so many children, um, and and older people in in Georgia and the Carolinas. So oh, so
1: it, the last sentence says during their absence, Robert's land and property was confiscated and sold. Jane was indicted for treason, and property she had inherited from her father was confiscated and sold. Now you just said that they went back to England, so they had to uh, um, retract her treason uh, indictment because if she was indicted for treason, she'd either be in jail or be killed. hmm So that's just a little piece picture of the the puzzle that the. Whatever we're looking at didn't didn't get into it with her because I'd like to know what they indicted her for treason for. That would have been nice to know. <laughs> the
0: loyalist. That's all it took. Well, I, her husband well, was fighting with the British. <laughs>
1: oh, okay. Well, see, that's that's one thing I didn't know, and I don't know if the essay you're going to read about punishing the Tories is going to say uh, it or even the laws in New Jersey. I didn't know if you if you had to have a specific. Um.
0: What do you call it? Um, charge. Well, yeah, we'll we'll get into the persecution and the punishments um, uh, because they they did they came up with some very you know I mean basically it was if you fought on the side of the king you you're, you were treasonous I mean that was treason against the the um, the Continental Congress. Okay. You weren't supposed to do that. You see, and there he was fighting with the British, up and down, shooting Patriot soldiers. You know, <laughs> yeah, that was treason, according to the Continental Congress or the the the, the um, provincial Congress in New Jersey. You know. So, do you want me to get into the persecution now? Yes, I do. Okay. Alright. This is from um Three Rivers HMS dot com, which is, you know, a wonderful site. We read often from it because they have wonderful articles. And this is just basically um the genealogy of the Kilts family, but it, it it discusses the persecution of the loyalists and it's by Angela E. M. Files. And um the noun, she starts, the noun persecution means pursue with harassing or oppressive treatment, especially because of religion, race, or belief. For their belief in the British system of government and crown, the Loyalists or Tories were persecuted before, during, and after the Revolutionary War. Most historians of this war agree there were two types of persecution to which the Loyalists were subjected oppressive treatment by lawless mobs and abuses carried out constitutionally by unjust and cruel laws authorized by the 13 colonies. It was the ha- at the hands of the mobs that the Loyalists first suffered persecution. On 26 August 1765, Sam Adams organized the Sons of Liberty, a secret organization of artisans, shipyard workers, and war of the northern Boston who were opposed to the Stamp Act that had been passed by the British Parliament and for raising revenue in the 13 colonies. The Sons of Liberty met around a Liberty Polar tree and pledged their sacred fortunes and their sacred honors. The Sons of Liberty planned and incited atrocities against the Loyalists through the use of mobs and propaganda. Sam Adams was the master of propaganda against the Loyalists, and yes, he was. Um, he knew how to turn a phrase. You know, the Boston Massacre, that was Sam Adams. He uh, he wrote up the piece and sent it to all the, the newspapers and all the co- um, colonies. Um, during that same year, Thomas Hutchinson, the lieutenant acting governor, attempted to enforce the Stamp Act. Samuel Adams, James Otis, and a radical mob attacked and destroyed the magnificent home and library of Governor Hutchinson in the home of his brother in law, judge and stamp collector Andrew Oliver. The Boston mob broke down the doors with broad axes, destroyed the furniture, stole the jewels and money. Scattered the papers and books, drank the wine in the cellar, and dismantled the roof and walls. The families barely escaped with their lives, and they did. It was Boston was quite the place there for a while, um, which is why when they did the Constitution, they were a representative republic instead of a democracy because they saw the mob rule, even on their own side, and and. They just didn't want it to have her happen again. That's why we have peaceful assembly people in a representative republic. Um, let's see. Meanwhile, Sons of Liberty Association sprang up in the 13 colonies. Through mob action, they intim- intimidated the British officials through vicious propaganda. They prompted the patriots to fight against those who were loyal to the British crown. In many of the colonial towns, they created local committees of correspondence. To resist the trade and navigation acts imposed by the British government, committees of inspection to ensure that the British trade was boycotted, and committees of safety, which supplied the Continental Army with men and equipment. The conflict between the populace and the British soldiers in such towns as New York and Boston led to such barbaric acts as the Boston Massacre. Well, that's a bit overblown. It wasn't a barbaric act. It was, um, oh, it was mob action and, you know... Soldiers that were just trying to well anyways, read about that, she has it a little woohoo but anyways, um seventeen months before the commencement of the revolutionary war on sixteen december seventeen seventy three a group of Bostonians instigated by patriot Sam Adams in disguise as Mohawk Indians boarded three bearer ships, and you know threw the tea in the in the the uh harbor. And um, yeah, that really, that you know, there were ripples in the pond from that. But in New York, mobs were active in destroying printing presses which had printed loyalist pamphlets and stealing cattle and personal property. The nucleus of such radical mob action was the Sons of Liberty groups, first making their appearance in New England and New York, but since springing up in virtually every colonial town. These organizations functioned as independent entities, and in fact no one has demonstrated a clear and undisputed lineage between them and the committees of correspondence. At the heart of the radical demonstrations was the mechanic, a catch-all term covering both master employees and journeymen wage workers. The mechanics were the radicals, and as such were indispensable ingredients in fueling the flame of political protest. Um, And it goes on about some, you know, these different... uh, people that, uh, um, you know, about tar and feathering and riding on the rail and all that. Uh, some of the revolutionary leaders encouraged the sadistic acts of the mob. In December 1776, the Provincial Congress of New York went so far as to order the Committee of Public Safety to purchase all the pit and tar necessary for the public's use and safety. General George Washington seems to have approved mob persecutions of the Tories. In 1776, General Israel Putnam, one of Washington's generals, met a procession of the Sons of Liberty, parading a number of Tories on rails up and down the streets of New York, and he attempted to halt this inhuman, inhumane proceeding. On hearing this, Washington reprimanded General Putnam, stating that to discourage such proceedings was to injure the cause of liberty in which they were engaged, and that nobody would... Okay, okay, all
1: right, all right. I've I, I got to co- pull the, the BS flag on this. Yes. There's no way that George Washington would sanction this behavior. No, he
0: he no no no. This is this is true. I I've, I've read it in his own words. He you know he he was not one. He was coming at it as a military man. This is what you know. You have to understand. He was looking at it. He 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 had some things to say about the loyalists. Um, that aren't. You have to read his his letters and a lot of his papers. He didn't have much use for them. And if the people wanted to uh, take matters into their own hands, he was not adverse to that. He wanted his army to behave themselves, as well they should. But he separated military from civilian. And this is one thing you have to realize about about George Washington. When he became commander in chief, you know his his first focus was the army, and if if people were you know doing things, and he was so ripped at the British to begin with, um, they they, they pissed him off. So, yep, yes, it, it, yes, yes.
1: Okay, well, I
0: just wanted clarification, because when I read that, I went... <laughs> yeah, no, see, this is the myth. Um, I've read some letters of his to um some of the other, you know, like when he was writing to the Congress or, you know, some of his friends. Who? You know, now you think of George Washington as just sitting there very quietly and serenely, and... No, George had a tart tongue, (laughs) and he was firm in his beliefs. So um, let's get down here. Uh, Okay. The, uh, The test oath was to enforce a declaration of principle from those who were indifferent to or were secret enemies of the revolution. State legislatures enacted test laws. The oath demanded by these laws varied in different colonies that adopted them, but in general, they prescribed loyalty to the patriot cause, disloyalty to the British government, and promised not to aid and abet the enemy. In the test acts passed before the Declaration of Independence, the oath of abjuration and allegiance was admitted. The Tory who refused to take the oath of allegiance became an outlaw. He did not even have the right of a foreigner in the courts of law. If his neighbors owned him money, he had no legal redress. No relative or friend could leave an orphan child to his guardianship. He could not be the administrator or ex- executor of a person's estate. If he was a lawyer, doctor, or someone with some other profession, he was often denied the right to practice his profession. Among the Whigs, there was opposition to the test laws. Peter Van Schack, a moderate Whig from New York State, disapproved of the test laws and left the Revolutionary Party. Had you, he wrote, at the beginning of the war, permitted everyone differing in sentiment from you to take the other side, or at least to have moved out of the state with their property, it would have been a conduct magnanimous and just. But now, after restraining those persons from removing, punishing them if in the attempt they were apprehended, selling their estates if they escaped, compelling them to the duties of subjects under heavy penalties, deriving aid from them in the persecution of war, prosecution of the war, now to compel them to take an oath is an act of severity. The early test laws passed by the revolutionary governments in 76 and 77, requiring a repudiation of loyalty to George III, were followed by more repressive measures, Nine states passed acts exiling prominent Tories, five states disenfranchised all Tories, and in most of the states loyalists were expelled from all offices, barred from the professions and forced to pay double or treble taxes. On 20 uh, November 27, 1777, Congress recommended to the states that they appropriate appropriate the property of residents who had forfeited the right to protection of the revolutionary government. The Treasury of the Continental Congress was empty, so the confiscation of properties owned by Tories provided an excellent means for filling the congressional coffers. In a resolution passed by the Continental Congress, it was recommended that the states invest the proceeds of the land sales in continental loan certificates. As Loyalists began leaving the Thirteen Colonies during the Revolutionary War, large sums of money from the sales of confiscated Tory properties began to find their way into state treasuries. The Revolutionary War ended officially in 1783 with the signing of the Treaty of Paris. Provisions were made in the Treaty for the Loyalists, requiring that they be treated not only with justice and equity, but with that spirit of reconciliation, which on the return of the blessings of peace should universally prevail. The act of the state legislatures did not follow the provisions in the treaty. Article 5 of the treaty stated that Congress shall earnestly recommend to the state legislatures that they provide for the restitution of all estates, rights, and properties, which have been confiscated and which belong to real British subjects. Also, the loyalists were to be permitted to go to any part of the 13 colonies and remain there for 12 months, unmolested in their endeavors to obtain such restitution. Article 6 of the treaty stated that there should be no future confiscation or collection of damages, and those confined should be released and not prosecuted. The seizure of Tory properties continued after the Revolutionary War, and those acts of confiscation were not punished by American courts. The estate of Oliver Delancey, Andrew Lambert, John Leonard – oh, dear – Philip Kearney, Cortland Skinner, and Benjamin Thompson of New Jersey were sold to the highest bidder after 1783. The estates of John Graham, Sir James Wright of Georgia, were sold after the signing of the Peace Treaty. Very few Loyalist properties were restored, and legal impediments were placed before Loyalists who wanted to collect debts owed to them, despite the fact that Article 4 of the treaty stated that British merchants were to meet no lawful obstacles in collecting their debts. There were also those ready to purchase fast holdings at very low prices. Some of them stirred up mob action to drive out the owners who land they wished to obtain. So that led to the um, British government appointing commissioners who sat at Halifax, St. John, Quebec, Montreal, and England at Lincolnsfield, London, to hear the claims of the exiled loyalists. The claimants could not be expected to have brought documents with them in their flight. The commissioners had to rely instead on the old and stories from claimants and other witnesses. And it, it, they finally got tired of paying the loyalists. The loyalists just kept coming, and they kept, you know, wanting more and more money. Uh, they, they had to pay out more and more money, um, and they finally realized that, you know, basically they were giving welfare to the loyalists, and they In the next couple of years, they restricted the payments in England and Canada. So um, the claims totaled 8,026,045 pounds, of which about a third was allowed. In addition, 303 of the exiles received pensions for life. These were nearly all widows. Uh, before it was over, the British government spent about $7,500,000 losing the war. So um, it goes on between the years 1780 and 81, the Provincial Congress of New York appointed commissioners to detect and prevent any conspiracies by the internal enemy, the Tories. The commissioners moved from place to place in order to arrest the enemy. A true patriot of the state was to reveal the name of Tories or be sent to prison. People were well paid for being informers to the Patriots. Okay, can you
1: just can you stop one second because I want to review some of the things that you've gone over and discuss it?
0: Okay? Oh yes, no problem.
1: Okay. First of all, look at how adamant the states were that they had their own sovereignty. They yes. didn't care what the Continental Congress said. They weren't waiting for the tree, the Treaty of Paris to, to set out Once the war was declared, they had to go through all the negotiations and all that. So states were like, no, we're going to go do what we have to do for our people. And the other thing is that the Congress recommended. The Congress didn't say you must do this. The Congress didn't say you have to do this. The Congress recommended. Look at how far we've come from those two concepts.
0: Yes, yes and that that is um that was one of the great debates as you well know uh between a, a centralized government and a uh limited government because there were the the Patrick Henrys versus the uh oh god what was his name the one who liked the banking idea um Washington
1: Alexander Hamilton? Yes
0: there was Pat, Patrick Henry people and and Alexander Hamilton people, and then you know, but most were in the middle. Um, but yeah, the states the states had been sovereign. In fact, you know, they called themselves countries. Like George Washington uh, said about Virginia, "I will not allow the British to take my country. I'm going back to my country." other um people said the same thing they talked about their the colony they lived in as their country uh and and they were very different they were very diverse in their in their um laws and then their their manners and customs uh because they were very diverse in in their people uh in their religion and and uh you know social mores and, and that um but the coastal people were more, uh, they were more towards Britain, and the the uh, inland people were more the independent, resolute Americans. You know, that's one reason they went inland, because they wanted to live their lives the way they wanted to, whereas on the coast it was much more... Um, well, there was a lot of governing going on. You know, that's where the aristocracy at the time was and, you know, the lawyers and the Congress critters. And even back then, they had politicians who were politicians. But, yes, it, it, they were very sovereign. Um, in fact, if you read um, more on, on the uh, what the different states came up with, it's amazing how some of the states were having none of this. They were going to treat the loyalists as the enemies they were, even after the war. Massachusetts was one of the uh, most um, compassionate of the states. You know, when I read what they, you know, each colony did, Massachusetts was like, let bygones be igons, you know, let them come back and, and everything's wiped clean, you know, just come back and, and, and be with us again. Versus I think it was Rhode Island that I I, mean, I don't hold me to this. But um it was like, no, no, nope, be gone. You know, go to Canada. We don't want you here. Um so, you know, each state was different. The Congress could only recommend because they had no uh which was one reason that uh they had no money because they couldn't force the states to pay taxes. They asked for the taxes or you know, money to pay for the war. Um but the, the, the states didn't have to because the, the Congress really in the in the Confederate uh, confederate um the uh Articles of Confederacy they had no sway over the. They had no power over the states, right?
1: But I, but I like how they this is showing, and telling the folks out there the states are sovereign. It's up to us and our states and our state legislatures to decide mm-hmm. what's going to happen with us, and we need to get back to it. hmm Because this is crap. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, no, especially we've... with especially with now you're having the President of the United States telling states who they have to house mm-hmm. by yes. bringing these refugees in. Who the hell does the federal government think it is telling me who I have to bring in my state
0: and how I'm going to have to have them? It's outrageous. Oh, I know. I know. I, I just, and in, in the states, some states are stepping up and going, no way, Jose, you know? <laughs> Well
1: Montana's is stepping up and saying, No way, Jose. We've had a couple of number of rallies here and they already sent letters to the President saying, No, they are not coming in here. And to tell you the truth, and I'm gonna say this on air again, ladies and gentlemen, if what's going on in England ever happened here in Montana, especially in front of my eyes, they will be dead.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's 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 ridiculous. It, it's it's Oh, it's just another play or page out of the, the Bolshevik playbook, um, you know. Right, Detroit, and what, we're, and what we're showing
1: right now is that the, the states back then would have none of this.
0: No, they had their own um, laws on immigration uh, into their states. I mean, you just didn't come into a state. You had, you know, I well, you did, but I mean... In the wilderness, that was a whole other thing. But um, they were they were particular, especially well, yeah. Like, and,
1: and just like you're saying, they're yeah. they're deciding what they're going to do with their own loyalists. No one was going to tell them what to do with them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so in in New Jersey, they passed laws about this. Um, you know. Towards the loyalists, and and, um, and then in September 1976, they passed the you know the the uh, um, the first law I talked about, uh, the one that uh, where civil and military officers had to take the oath. And on June 5th, 77, persons uh, they, uh, there was the oath giving chance for reconciliation. And this affected persons who have been seduced from their allegiance but since became sensible of their error. So if you, if you came back and said, oh, I was mistaken, you know, let me take the oath, you um, you okay. Uh, but if you didn't, the penalty was forfeit personal estate, not allowed to transfer real estate. And October 6th of 77, they went after the counselors, proctors, solicitors, attorneys, journeymen, public teachers, and instructors. And if they didn't take the oath, they had to pay a 5 to $20 fine. October 1st, 1778, a provision for those who have scruples against the oath, um, and it doesn't say who it affected. I, I think it, it basically affected anybody who didn't take the oath. By seventy eight they were they were after everybody. And that, you know, they took your, your property and then they you know, put you up for treason and and uh but yeah, so these were um they uh you know it, and and on this page at toriesfightingfortheking.com it it lists all the you know the the different um states the different colonies and what they what they uh, uh um it's, yeah it says disenfranchised it, this was Connecticut disenfranchised and deprived of office all members of the general assembly civil and military officers Officers later extended this to freemen and all persons over 21, denied the right to be an executor or guardian. In uh, 77, could be charged with treason or misprision of treason and could be subject to, subject, subject to prosecution for previous acts of disloyalty to the state. And that, that was pretty much throughout the colonies, and that's why she was um, she was put up for treason. Right, that makes sense now that you said it that way. Yeah, and and in New York, the um, inhabitants of Westchester County were treated as open enemies. You know, <laughs> that was it. You were an enemy. Open enemy, which meant, you know, we can kill you. Yeah. So there was, like, you know, some, some colonists Colonies were stricter than others, but for the most part, they all fell in line, you know, and decided that Tories or loyalists should, you know, not be given any, you know, we're going to take your land, we're going to take your your property, and you, you have to get out, or we'll imprison you, or we'll just imprison you. And you can't hold your business, you can't take office, you have no... Well,
1: think about it, though. They're, they're, this is called self-preservation.
0: Well, this is it. This is see. This is what we're fighting right now with the Muslims. You know, the Islamists um, that want to come in and and take us out internally. And you know, we have the the PC crowd going. Oh well, you know, it's just it's not their religion. It's not you know. No, no, no. no they're the antithesis of what we believe in here in America they they would not take an oath to they would not you know the 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 ones who want to um take us over and have us bow down to their um god um they 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 are the ones that are trying to do us in therefore our self preservation is no it's not going to happen, and we will fight you. But, you know, we can't do that with our present government.
1: Okay, so I'm going to finish off. We have about 20 minutes, and I'm going to finish um, her story off is just a tiny little paragraph about what became of her. But it's kind of interesting. Um After the peace, and you've read this before as well, uh, after the peace of 1783, Robert fled to England, presumably with Jane and the children. He lived in London and died there in 1789, leaving no will. Now, that's significant. She doesn't have any family there. We don't know what family he has left in England, and he had no will. So she she was left with nothing, even in England. So, at this time, Jane must have returned to New Jersey because she died in seventeen ninety in Essex County, so she died a year after him, also leaving no will. Her daughter mary Mary soon married her youngest son El- her daughter Mary soon married her youngest son, Elias, age
0: sixteen.
1: no no oh, uh, no, no no her daughter her daughter, <laughs> her daughter Mary soon married. Was her youngest son. son well, no, I don't understand what this is saying. Her
0: yeah, her daughter married. Her daughter Mary soon married. Pause. Her youngest son, Elias, age 16, became the ward of a family friend. ward of a family friend. Okay, I see what you're saying.
1: But it yep. isn't clear what became of her other son, Robert.
0: Right. Okay, so. Well, we're she, up against She so had many- just
1: gotten enough money to get passage back to New Jersey, and
0: they're pretty much living in squalor. Well, I imagine when, when he, um, Robert Drummond went over, see, if you had fought in the beginning, in the beginning when they went to England, the parliament, um, you, you automatically were given, I mean, it said in that other article what he was given. Um, let me see if I can find that. Um the other one here, it it tells. Oh, the yeah, other the book, the new news history of the Saic, from the earliest settlement to the present. That's the book by William Jameson Pape in 1873. But it says here, um, okay, <laughs> the family. Received, okay, he owned the property where was it was on The business was with it was to- the. He gave up wealth and died. He, well, he gave up wealth and died poor. Yes, but he was in um um. Oh, where does it say uniforms? Uh, he was in uniforms. Okay, ah, I can't find it now. But he was given something by you know when he went to England. He all all pe- all refugees who went to England who had fought for the British or supported the British army in some way that was tangible, and my God, he had, you know, my he had oodles of tangible evidence to prove that he had fought. Um, they were given a certain amount of um, money, and let me see if it's in the other one here. And they were given some land. Uh, let's see if it says the full biography. Let's see if it goes on to that. Yeah, I became rake after that. Oh, yeah, here it is. Um, they were set up in London by the following February after leaving New York on uh, November twenty fifth, 1783. I was awarded 1,286 pounds in damages. Oh, this is by the Commissioners for American Claims. That was, that was the... Uh, the English department that was in England, London, that they could go and and make claims. So he was given 1,286 pounds, and it said this allowed me to live in some comfort for the remaining five years of my life. So I imagine she had a bit of money um, to, you know, board the ship and go back to America with her kids. Or maybe her kids didn't follow. It doesn't really say, does it?
1: No, and i It's curious that she would go back to America. (laughs) Can She was a a realist. Her husband
0: had died. She was born there. And she she probably had people there, you know. uh, Right.
1: Well, well, the other thing, too, to bring up is if he had no will, then the tension that – her husband got was not transferable,
0: as far as I'm, I can see. No. Uh, oh, no, no. It was. That was. The the English set it up. The British Parliament set it up that the family of the claimant was cared for, too, in the beginning. They finally Yeah, had but
1: after, but I know, but after he died.
0: Yeah, no, that was hers. They would take care of the family as well even after the applicant the claimant died.
1: Well then why would she come that, that after she come five back years? To New York <laughs> New Jersey. Hmm. Why would she come back to New to America if she would be taken care of in England?
0: Well remember well if they gave her the money. You know, you didn't have to stay in England um to, to to get the money and of course, you know, she died a year after so that took care of that. But um, yeah, in the beginning when they when they you know started the the commission here, it was the claimants that fought for the British during the war. they and their families were taken care of, so it was her money just it was the family's money
1: okay
0: yeah and and they took care of the widows to till the end of their days in the beginning they finally cut that out because they found that their coffers were going dry
1: right it was unsustainable imagine that
0: imagine that yes because you know people weren't doing anything they were just collecting money imagine that so they stopped that but when she, when they went over there in the first um the first 5 years you know, Britain took care of them monetarily. That was about it, though. So you know, and I remember the other woman who was there. And they, they, the refugees found out that England, you know, looked at them as as um, lesser than citizens. They weren't welcomed with open arms. A lot of them left and went to, um, you know, the the Bahamas and you know the other. Uh, English colonies because England was so not welcoming. Right. It worked. You know, even if you wanted to. It was very hard to set up um, in a place that was well set up, entrenched. So they went off to Canada or they went um, east.
1: Well, that's
0: her story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a story, well, really.
1: Unfortunately, unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, this is some of the things we're going to encounter when we do highlight these wonderful, wonderful ladies of the revolution on both sides. Thank you very much. Um, there's there's going to be gaps in who, what we find out about them because of, well, like Yankee Mom always says, it's they could have got you know, any records could be have been destroyed, even in the in the battles in the Revolutionary War could have been destroyed. Right there. Um or they were never written down. Or they're in somebody's attic.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny no. today my brother I, I got a package for my brother and he put in my mother's discharge uh papers And her her honorable discharge certificate from the Navy from World War Two, and it was like whoa, you know there there it was.
1: Yeah, that's 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 very awesome.
0: It is. It It is. is. He had it, you know. So God knows what he's got in his drawers. (laughs) Or in his attic, right? Yeah, he's well. He 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 lives in you know the town we grew up in, and he has he went through all this stuff and pulled it, and um, and of course you know, God, I'd have to rent a truck, right? I I took a couple of boxes after we cleaned out the house to sell it after my both my parents died, but we have um, I have her her anchors that went on her uniform. Oh great! Yeah, yeah, I found them in a box. So God knows what He's got in the boxes I haven't seen. <laughs> oh. oh, it's really, it's really cool. So people, look in your attic. What your? Go to your aunt's house or your uncle's house and your grandparents' house. See what they might have tucked away. You never know.
1: No, you never do. And that's how we're getting this information anyway. Uh, The people that are writing the books. How do you think they got that information that we've been uh, disseminating and giving out to the good folks of the
0: United States and beyond? They
1: found it in somebody's attic, right, or
0: in an old book in the library,
1: or, you know.
0: They're in the archives. In fact, go to archives.gov, and you will find many, many documents that they have digitalized. (laughs) Um, Letters from all these people at this time that they have collected and that people have donated, and then you can go to libraries. I found many libraries uh, online that are starting to digitize um, the documents they have that they've gotten from families who've donated them, you know, local families that have donated articles such as this, you know, letters and correspondence or, you know, journals. Uh, They're out there. You just have to hunt them down. And and that's why I'm so glad so many people are actually going to the original sources for their information in the books that they're writing today. And, like, again, be very careful when you pick up books that you, you look in the bibliography and see original documents a lot because, on the other side, there are people who decide to tell you what you should know, and we don't want to read them. We want to read the original documents, Um, which is why I knew, because Ron Chernow did such a great job with his original documents of Washington. That's how I knew that Washington definitely would have said that to Putnam. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I just, I well, I didn't read the book that you read, but um, from what you've been telling me and some of the little bits that that I have read, uh, that makes sense because he, and again, it goes, it goes towards liberty mindedness. Okay, mm-hmm. I mean he can tell his troops what to do, but who is he, or any of his troops, to tell somebody else what to do? That's not in the armed forces.
0: Yeah, he he was General Washington at that time.
1: Well, but I mean that's sort of, um, that's was sort of the whole mindset of we the
0: people. Yes. Back
1: then we were like, who are we to tell somebody else what to do? God gave us free will,
0: and this is why. He gave I mean, the, his sword to the Congress after he was done fighting. He gave up everything. I mean, they would have made him king right then. Yeah, they would have crowned him. if, And he, he could have been president forever. But he gave the, his sword to them and left because he firmly believed in the people. We just fought. For liberty and independence and sovereignty. So he was not one to, um, to. to I mean, he controlled his troops because they weren't going to get out of line. You know, he he was firm on that. But when it came to the people, hey, you know, do what you will. Fight for Liberty. That's All nice.
1: right. Well, we're up at almost at the top of the hour, and I want to tell everyone to go to Patriot's Pub. PatriotsPub.us, to find out about the Constitution. You need to have knowledge, people. This is the only way we're going to get the Republic back. You need stuff to fight these commies and these progs with. Go to PatriotsPub.us, PatriotsPub.us. It is a constitutional convention day by day, In their own words, my husband and two other scholars, one who got the Yankee Mom and I together, God rest his soul, Tim Curlin and Troy LaPlante and my husband Brian Bonner, it was was a three-year project. They put it together, no politics at all. Just what the Founding Fathers said at the convention, you will know why the Constitution was written the way it is. You will know why they protected us against what is going on right now. We still have time if we learn. We need knowledge right now. And as always, I let Yankee you Mom take us out.
0: All right. Well, we're sending more troops in. You won't hear about it on the news, but I get the the alerts and keep an eye on what you know the army and, and everybody's doing because I have a kid in uniform so um pray for them as they're they're getting ready. They're they're sending more. They're rotating troops out of South Korea and sending more troops into South into South Korea. Um, and of course, you, North Korea is flexing its little muscles. And uh, you know, so give a prayer for those who are uh, that nobody talks about because they're not you know they're undercover, special ops and all that. Pray for them especially because they go into the worst part and. Talk to your representatives. Please, this is an election year. Please, please talk to your representative about our vets. They're getting screwed royally. They're dying trying to get an appointment or their meds. So please, please talk to your, you know, make sure that they hear about the vets. Um, And as always, God bless America, and uh, don't let the campaign silly season get you down. We are going to fight this all the way through and keep your powder dry. And God bless you, Loki. We miss you, darling. And good night, people. Thanks for stopping by. We will be back next week, same time. Good night.